0: The following is session one, focusing on sin, of a teaching series by Reverend Stephen Stacks entitled, Christianese, Understanding the Words of Our Faith. OK, I'm going to go old school today. No PowerPoint, no no fanciness, just uh, paper. <laughs> um, before, we, before I ask you to do something with that paper that's on your tables, I want to tell you a little anecdote that I think gets to the heart of um, kind of the ambiguities and the, the trouble with this word sin and how we uh, typically talk about it. Um, this comes from an Annie Dillard book but it's uh, it goes like this an Eskimo hunter uh, goes to speak with a missionary who's in his village to preach and he says alright I have a question for you I want to ask you something and the missionary says okay shoot what is it? And the Eskimo says, if I did not know about God and sin, would I go to hell? And the missionary says, no, you wouldn't if you didn't know about it. And he says, well, then why did you tell me? (laughs) Uh,
1: Which
0: I think is a good story, a good little, you know, anecdote, because it, it kind of exposes that the way we often talk about sin and salvation is as some kind of divine equation to get to heaven, and then if you don't know about it, then you'll have no experience of what it is we're trying to talk about when we talk about sin, and that like, it's some formula that can be imported, and you just believe, you know, okay, if A plus B equals C, then, you know, um, but I think it's much more complicated than that, and I don't think that that adequately describes what the Bible is talking about when it talks about sin, and... Um, what we'll talk about later, which is what I think we all experience when we're trying to use words to describe um, our experiences. I think sin is an attempt to describe something that is universal, that we experience um, rather than some kind of algebra formula for getting to heaven. Um, So, before we start wrecking everything you think about sin, I want you to play a little word association with me. So I want you to take the paper on your tables, and very quickly, don't think about it, just write down the first three words that pop into your brain when you hear the word sin. Three words that pop into your brain when you hear the word sin and don't think too hard, just write in Okay, somebody shout out some of the words. That... Separation from God. Separation, okay. Faithful. Judgment. Hate hate. Bad. 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 Lying. lying, guilt.
1: Disobedience. disobedience,
0: disobedience disrespect, disrespect, disrespect. Evil. Evil. evil hurting others. Hurting others. Cheating.
1: Pain all night long.
0: Pain all night long. <laughs> <Pain. laughs> Alright. Greed. There's a story there. we will hear it later, probably. <laughs> Greed.
1: Black. Black.
0: Okay. Cross. Cross. Alright. Stealing. Stealing. Okay. So good, all over the map. Some specific things. Some yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, failure to maintain.
0: Failure to maintain. Interesting. Okay. Um, all right. Now, on the same piece of paper, just below where you just wrote that, I want you to come up with a very concise definition of sin. Just what you think it means. One sentence and a short sentence, if if possible. What is what is sin? God. Okay. Everybody take a minute and write it down and then I'll get some other. We've already heard uh, some of your word associations were definitions, basically. Uh, Separation from God, that's a definition of sin, really. Um, Did anybody else come up with something else uh, that you want to share about definition of sin? I
1: don't know what the Bible says is wrong, because some sins aren't against the law, so it's not a legal thing. Okay, so there's a difference between sin and,
0: you're talking about like United States... Or local, state, or national, federal laws. Okay, yeah? A
2: breaking relationship with
0: God. Breaking relationship with God, okay? Um, everything you do because you believe God So Sue believes in total depravity. <laughs> it's,
1: it's
0: okay. Yeah. One. Enlightenment?
1: Enlighten-
0: of enlightenment of need. <laughs> need. Oh, I like that. All right. interesting. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Anything else? Anybody just say disobedience? I
2: said not knowing what Jesus
0: yeah. I mean, how many people wrote some form of disobeying God? Okay.
2: Lack of self-control.
0: All right. Yeah. <coughs> um, so I wanted to tell you a little bit of, uh, I think it's always important for us to kind of think about our own experience with these theological concepts. So I wanted to tell you uh, my sin story a little bit, uh, my experience with that word because and I and the reason I'm telling you this is so that you will start to think about your own uh, story, how you're, you know, how you've thought about that word differently over the course of your life or any kind of a defining experiences about what you think that word means. Um I grew up with uh, a version of the Christian faith that um, I would call my understanding of sin, um, my formation as a child and young person, as the kind of Roman road, trackified version, track, as in the tracks you hand out, uh, <laughs> version of sin. Um, for instance, I, uh, I don't know if, how many of you have been to a uh, judgment house. Does oh anybody so know I what that is? Know. Never heard of that. Don't, don't ever, don't ever go. To <laughs> one. But what it is is it's a it's a kind of uh, fundamentalist Christian version of a haunted house. So instead of going to a haunted house, you go to a judgment house, and you hear the story of someone who uh, you know is caught up in sin whatever sin they choose is the one they want to be mad about that day and then you this person dies and goes to hell and you kind of see all the horrors of hell and then they have an alternate version where they got saved before they died and you see this you know glorious room that's a picture of heaven and then at the end you go into a little room and they're like you could die tonight do you want to give your life to Jesus (laughs) little commitment cards that you can sign. I was already saved multiple times by then, so, so <laughs> that that didn't affect me. And I was just like, I liked the hell room. That was cool. Uh, <laughs> Fire and stuff. Um, but but that is out there. That's, that's a thing that people do. Um, maybe not anymore. But uh, another um, kind of, I think, a little snapshot into what I was... Raised to think about, sin is that when Elizabeth and I first started dating, I bought her uh, the True Love Waits ring. Does anybody what? Know what this is? Yes. 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 And I gave her the Love Waits, and I kept the True. <laughs> <laughs> we, now, to, to be to be fair, we started dating when we were
1: sixteen,
0: so <laughs> <laughs> not. This wasn't recent. But however, um, uh, the idea being that, you know, we would not have sex until we got married. And these rings were a, a promise that that was going to happen. And uh, that idea of, you know, premarital sex as, you know, sin and, like, the the thing that's most emphasized by some people is, uh, you know... The thing that you should care about most, forget everything else, what Jesus called the weightier matters of the law, and, you know, focus on this purity culture stuff, um, that takes a long time to get over and get out of. Um, I started to kind of grow increasingly suspicious of uh, the kind of simplistic understanding of that I was uh, given of sin, um, the way that some people wielded that word against other people that I loved, and um, also increasingly more aware that there was a deeper reality that I was experiencing that wasn't described by that word, um, as well as uh, a kind of um, just a, a general kind of misgivings about this overly black and white understanding of, of the faith. and um, so for a while, I just... Gave up talking about sin at all because I thought, you know, my faith has been deconstructed, it's being reconstructed right now, and I don't know what to think about this word. I, it's, you know, it has bad connotations for me, you know, not just bad, but harmful and toxic connotations for me and for lots of people around me. Um, and so I just said, maybe that's one of those words that we can give up on. Right? Uh, it's not until recently that I. Um, have felt that we are impoverished by not having that language in our faith journey. Um, And not just we, like Greenwood Forest, but um, what I'm gonna talk about in a minute, which is the Christian church in America writ large, and I think all across theological spectrum, um, people avoid this word for different alternatives, and we'll talk about those in a second. But I think that uh, we need to figure out how to reclaim it, um, how to talk about it, because I think it describes a reality that is vital for us to talk about. Um, And I also think it is uh, not a good plan for us to cede the definition of this word to people with harmful and toxic theology. Let them define what sin is, Um, and we've seen the effects of that, I think, um, of letting uh, only certain bad actors in the public eye define what sin means um, for the rest of us. And those of us who don't agree with that just don't talk about sin at all, thereby letting them define a word that is used all over our scriptures and in our faith tradition, which I think is not good. Um, So... I tell you all that just because I want you also, again, to think about your own experiences with that word as we continue, Um, what your story with it, how you've evolved in your understanding of it, where you are now. Maybe you're still in that spot that I was in where where you're like, I don't know if I care to talk about this word, Um, but here you are. So now you have to listen. (laughs) I guess you don't have to, you can leave. (laughs) So, as I was saying, I think sin still sounds like judgment and blame for many of us. It rings with that abuse and coercion of a type of faith that some of us are trying to recover from. Um, And in response, many Christians and churches have dispensed using the language altogether, stopped, for instance, stopped confessing the sins in worship to cultivate a more positive experience, right? Um, Stopped preaching about sin and the need for repentance and reparation, um, but not talking about sin will not make the reality that it is trying to describe go away um, So I want us to be provoked today by, the, by this phrase by Barbara Brown Taylor Which is kind of the impetus for today's talk And she says in this book that I put on the ministerial staff reading list that I'm stealing from today um, She said, sin is our only hope Sin is our only hope which is a provocative phrase, and we're going to talk about what that might mean in a second. Um, but as we start to ponder it, I want to get into some, uh, some points I want to make. Um, the first one we've already mentioned, which is our culture has avoided the language of sin. Um, and when I say our culture, I don't mean that other people who aren't Christians should be talking about sin. I mean, Christians in our culture have avoided the language of sin to describe what happens in our world and to us. Um, And this is not just progressive Christians. We typically think of, you know, if we're talking about somebody that we think would like to avoid talking about sin, you know, we, at least in my mind, I think about uh, liberal and progressive churches as the people who don't talk about sin very much, but that's not actually true. Um, We choose different language to describe the reality. That's what happens. We don't not talk about it. We talk about it in different ways, and I think those ways are not as deep and compelling. So the first model that people sometimes use to replace sin is medical language or the medical model. And in this model, the basic human problem is not sin, but sickness. Everyone is vulnerable to being sick. Get sick. It's largely out of your control, and it's no one's responsibility, right? If you get sick, it's not your fault. This is how sickness works. We need diagnosis and treatment, not judgment and penance. That's the what this model claims, right? This is a kind of no-fault theology that emphasizes the existential nature of sin, that it's, you know, pervasive and unavoidable, um, and not the individual uh, component of sin. Um, We just all do the best we can. And judgment doesn't seem appropriate because sin is all pervasive, and everyone's caught up in it, and there's nothing you can do about it, right? Um, and we just really need therapy and treatment, not repentance. Um, this model, liberal Christians tend towards this model. as, as a Now, that's not universally true, but typically, um, that kind of language uh, liberal Christians tend to emphasize. The other one that's out there a lot is a legal legal model, legal language as as a replacement for the language of theology. And in that model, the basic human problem is not sin or sickness, but crime. No matter how serious or minor the offense, the presence of law suggests that our behaviors are governable, and that each person is responsible for their own actions, and that regardless of circumstance, Everyone is free to avoid a life of crime, and therefore must face the consequences if they fail. In this model, the answer to the human problem is not medicine, but a swift dose of retributive justice. What this person needs is to be straightened out. This is a full fault theology with an emphasis on sin as willful misbehavior and a belief that things are black and white, that people are either sheep or goats, that they're good or evil, that God will decide and hand down your sentence. Part of the appeal of this model is this belief that we can single out the bad apples. We can put them away, and the rest of us can be free to enjoy this wonderful sense of innocence, right? We've gotten all these people out of our midst, and now we're just good to go, right? Um, Because when you start to decide that people are either sheep or goats, now what do you think you're, you know, typically... Sheep, right? Those other people are goats, and therefore, I'm good, right? Um, Conservative Christians tend towards this as a replacement for the language of sin because of, you know, um, the kind of legal model. Uh, Now, I'm going to argue along with Barbara Brown Taylor that neither of these is an appropriate replacement for the language that we have from our faith tradition, sin. Salvation, repentance. That these things are deeper and more uh, descriptive and more complex and useful concepts to talk about the human experience than these other two models are. Um, In the theological model, or the model talking about sin, the basic problem is not sickness or lawlessness, but sin, which is something we experience both as individuals and in the existential angst of our species. We experience it as wrecked relationship, which we've talked about some already, with God, with each other, with creation. We've all experienced, I think, um, wrecked relationship with someone or with the divine or with creation in some way, shape, or form. Um, Sometimes we cause it, and sometimes we're trapped in it. So there is, not a, there is neither no fault or full fault. Um, contrary to the medical model, we're not simply at the mercy of our maladies, of our sickness. Um, there are God-given pockets of freedom where we can choose to transform our lives. Right? It's not just, let's toss our hands up. Um, at the same time, Contrary to the legal model, it's not just, sin is not just a set of things not to do. But a way of life that needs to be exposed and no one is innocent and no one is fully guilty, fully responsible for everything that happens in the world and for what they do. Um, And here's the thing that's beautiful about sin language is that it emphasizes the fact that we're not doomed that's what's beautiful about people think that sin is a negative thing and that it's bad, bad, bad and we don't want to talk about it but what's beautiful about the language of our faith is that when you start talking about sin then you get to talk about repentance and grace right but what do those words mean without sin what does grace mean All right, the next thing I want to understand today is uh, talk a little bit more about the concept of sin in scripture and how I think it's much deeper and much more varied than we have given it credit for. Um, So kind of my my second point is that sin is more complicated than we have been taught, I think. Um, And actually, we had uh, a good number of kind of varied definitions out there um, and word associations, which is good. So we're on... We're on the way um, with regard to this one. Um, I'm, ju- I'm going to give you a couple of uh, words that get translated as sin, not because I'm a Hebrew or Greek scholar, because it matters that much to you, but just to show you that, first of all, there are different. there's lots of different words in Scripture that try to describe this reality. Um, they mean slightly different things. And... Uh, that, um, yeah, it's just more complicated than than we have imagined it to be. So in Hebrew, these are just three of the. There's more than this, but three of the words that are used to describe sin. Um, Hatah, which uh, is most often used and translated as sin, which means to miss a mark. And you've probably heard this before, maybe. How many have heard this idea of missing the mark? Okay. Um, It's kind of an archery metaphor. All right, shooting at the bullseye and you miss the mark. Um, another word in Hebrew is "avah," which means to act wrongly. It's often translated as "iniquity," which is another old word that we don't really use much anymore. And then "pasha," which means to rebel. And this one's used in stronger context sometimes, outright rebellion against God. Um, but they're all, you know, talking about sin. Now, it, when the Bible was translated into Greek, um, the word that kind of won out over those three was, is the first one, to miss the mark. So the Greek version of that is uh, hamartia. And that's, the word, that, that's where we get the word for the study of sin in you know, theology, which is called hamartiology, which I don't care about. But that's where that comes from, uh, <laughs> is the Greek word for missing the mark. Um, now, strangely, I've heard sermons in that kind of context that I described for you that I came out of that you that talk about this um, missing the mark language, but what, what that, um, the way people, I think, misinterpret that often is that they think it's about, you know, trying to be pure, right? I'm shooting for that bullseye. I'm trying to be pure, and I do stuff that's bad and miss the mark, which, I mean, makes sense, right? That, that's kind of the way I think people typically talk about it. I would like us to think a little more complexly about what that could mean as far as, um, and we'll get to this more later, about uh, what if the mark we're shooting for isn't purity, but fully understanding and living into the love of God Bearers of God's image. And missing that mark is more about the fact that we experience that we're not all the way there, right? We experience that separation. And that's what kind of missing the mark means rather than, you know, oh, well, I cursed today. I missed the mark. Um,. Now, there's categories of sin discussed in scripture and theology that uh, I want us to think about for a second. So the one that we talk about most often is personal or individual sin, right? Maybe not we, I should, I should be careful when I use the word we, but many people emphasize that one, personal and individual sin. But there's also what's called original sin, which many of us have heard that term and may or may not understand what that means. Corporate or social sin. Think of uh, the people of Israel um, worshiping the idol as Moses is getting the Ten Commandments from God. It's not, you know, nobody even though, you you know, people try to scapegoat Aaron. (laughs) Nobody is really individually to blame for what happens there. It's the group. Right? Another good example of this is, uh, um, a lot, there's a lot of good ones from the Civil Rights Movement, um, of corporate and social sin. But one that Barbara Brown Taylor tells in this book is that she was in sixth grade when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And she was sitting in her classroom. The principal came on and announced that he was assassinated. And the children, the sixth grade children in her class, cheered. sin that's sin but they're children right so it's more complicated than are they responsible for that or not you know um and then lastly another thing that we try to talk about but is complicated is systemic or structural sin and i think it's slightly different than corporate or social sin um Social sin is, is you know groups of people doing stuff, right? Um, <clears throat> structural sin is more elusive than that. It's things that are baked into our um, society and the way it works. For instance, uh, a great example of this is redlining, um, which is housing discrimination against African Americans if you don't, or, and other people as well. But if you don't know what that is, uh, in the 30s when the government was trying to boost the economy out of the depression. They were giving banks guidelines for how to you know, give mortgages to people, and they created districts, including districts with red lines around them that were risky places, so banks did not give mortgages or gave very high-interest mortgages to the people living in those zones. Um, nothing different about those zones as far as the statistics go from other some other places other than they were largely minority communities. And that th- that practice was outlawed in 1968 with the Fair Housing Act, but it continues to this day in other forms, right? So that's something that, who do we blame for that? Is there a group of people we can point to and say, those people, they, they did the redlining? Is there an individual we can point to? Or is that something that we would describe as sinful, but built into our systems and our society, and how do we get rid of that? I think there's all these different categories of sin, and what I want to ask you is, is there anything, any single sin, that would fit solely into one of these? I mean, just think about it for a second, it's kind of rhetorical, but... um, we, when we make categories of things, we like to place things into the categories, right? That, you know, that person committed adultery, so that's, a, that's an individual sin. But how might that act have been conditioned by various other things that, you know, that we might label as structural or corporate? Or how might we talk about original sin and that kind con- mean, So my point is that no single act can fit into one of these. Um, They all overlap, which again points to the fact that both the medical model of talking about what's wrong with the world, that, you know, it's everywhere, there's nothing we can do about it, let's just treat people, Um, and the legal model that everyone's responsible for their own actions that we need to punish people when they do something wrong. Um, Neither of those really fit the reality of the situation, that all of these things are bound up together. So by creating the categories, we get to escape those that we don't think we fit in. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, sure. Yeah, we can, so yes, we can say, that person is a racist. And that person did this racist thing and I, that's an individual sin, right? Or maybe even it's a structural thing that they, you know, are participating in, but I get to exempt myself from that, from having to do anything about that because I can point over there. But when we recognize that sin is a human problem and that we all are both responsible and not responsible, I mean, you know, when we recognize that it's more complex than that, then... There's something for everyone to do about it, right? And that is actually the hope, and that's where I'm headed next. But sin is more compelling as a concept to me when you realize that it's not a part of some divine algebra equation, like we talked about earlier, for getting into heaven, or a word that moral purists get to weaponize against whoever they is their, you know, sin de jour. Um, but is human language. The Bible was written by humans. I don't know if we need to say that, but it was. Inspired, but human. Um, That attempts to describe a universal experience, what I would call alienation from love and life, which is God, right? The source of love and life. Um, But also found in our relationships with each other and creation. Sometimes we feel this alienation because of our own actions. You, I mean, I think we've all had the experience of doing something, and we thought, "Hmm, you know, you feel it right then, sometimes where you're like, there's "I just did something, and I can't take it back." and there was a breach in relationship of some kind right then. Um, but sometimes we are simply caught up in it. Regardless, when we feel it, we long for it to be made right, I think. Um, And so my my last point is that sin is our only hope, meaning that unless we can acknowledge that something is wrong, we cannot take steps to make it right, that there is no help for those who don't think they need it. Jesus talked about this a lot. Do the healthy need a doctor? I came to... Save the lost, right? I'm leaving the 99 for the one. The 99 will be fine, right? Jesus talked about this all the time. The people who know they need it, and we talked about this in my sermon a couple weeks ago, that the reason that this parable of the Pharisee and the publican is powerful and the tax collector is powerful is that, you know, we talk about you have to be able to acknowledge that vulnerability to be, for change to be possible. Um, and there is also no hope for those who think the world is sadly and irreversibly wrecked and this is I think a a very real danger right now for a lot of us especially who pay attention to what's happening the overwhelming amount of information we receive every day about what's horribly awry in the world Um, there there is a very real danger that we become Uh, cynical and um, kind of toss our hands up that it's beyond repair right Um, but the language of sin gives us something to grapple with in the face of that Um, and like I said earlier without a robust understanding of sin I think the other words in our faith lose meaning Paul talks about grace. You know, what what does that word mean apart from a full understanding of sin? So, before we read a couple of passages of Scripture, maybe one or two, looking at the time, um, I want to give us a better working definition of sin, which I've kind of uh, been mentioning all along, but here it is in one... uh, Place in one sentence, and I would call it living out of the illusion that we are separate from God and each other. Living in denial of your own or someone else's identity as a bearer of God's image. Alienation from the source of love and goodness for which you were created. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'll also include it on the study guide that I sent to your teachers and, and leave in your Sunday school boxes so you can have it. But living out of the illusion that we are separate from God and each other. Living in denial of your own or someone else's identity as a bearer of God's image. So that second part there gets to what I think... Well, Lauren and I were talking about this earlier in the week because um, I think part of the problem is that we the most of the people who have talked about sin for, like, the 2,000 years of Christian history are men, um, and uh, people tend to talk from their own vantage points. Um, <laughs> that is normal. Um, and so we've had 2,000 years of men talking about sin in a way that, you know, Men, as they are socialized, typically experience sin. So a lot of times we talk about sin as pride. You know, prideful um, or domination of someone else. But where does that leave uh, women in the discussion? So this is the the feminist critique of the way we've talked about sin for 2,000 years is that uh, I don't think that's a good enough... A full enough definition of what sin might be. And so this idea that um, you know not acknowledging God's image in you can also be sin. Right? In yourself or another person. So that names something that, and again, this is enough this is this is why we need the definition of sin as not each individual's responsibility, because that's you know a trauma victim is not responsible for the way that they view themselves after that, right? That's someone else's fault. However, we need to be able to name that separation, that alienation from themselves and, and other people and God and creation somehow. right? Yes. I've got a question. Who was that. it? That's something, that, that's something that, that came to mind that you were speaking about. Uh, and asking the question if, uh, may have heard a statement, of church hurt? Mm hmm. Yeah. Church hurt. Church hurt. And that's caused, that, uh, a lot of that
1: caused by basically what you were discussing.
0: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and that is actually the paradox here is that, you know, when a preacher gets up and starts talking about this and that and that, our sins. The danger is that they create what they're talking about by, you know, creating church hurt. Um, that is what's many people. Have, that's been many people's experience of church, right? However, on the other side of that uh, that coin, um, the church also has to be able to name some things as wrong right and call people but the point is not to say you are wrong the point is to say there's a, there's a fuller life right Th- that we all can have alright who has their bible with them <laughs> hey Jeff since you have yours can you look up Micah 6, verses 9 through 12. Who else has a Bible? Sue, can you look up John 8, verses 2 through 11? I saw another hand back there somewhere. Judy, can you look up Romans 7, verses 14 through 25? And I am going to read for you the very first time that sin is mentioned in the Bible. Which is where do you think? But where in Genesis? You might think so. You might think it was mentioned in the the fall narrative, but it's not, actually. Exactly. Well, Lee just said Cain and Abel is the first time that sin is mentioned in Scripture, which is interesting, right? Okay. Steve,
2: what did you say
0: in John? John 8, verses 2 through 11. Here is Genesis 4, verses 3 through 7. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Weird, right? Doesn't seem to be, you know, an individual act that Cain commits or some kind of internal thing that is wrong with Cain. This external beast that's ready to pounce on you. That's the first description of sin in scripture. Interesting. Micah 6.
2: Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. He the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house? and the short ephod, which is accursed. Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhibitions... uh, Your inhabitants are liars, and their tongue speaks deceitfully.
0: Okay. So this is Micah, very upset about what I would call both corporate and structural sin. Um, your scales are unjust, right? It's an economic practice he's describing. Um, you, your wealthy landowners evict their poor, you know, this kind of thing. Um, interestingly, right after that beautiful verse that we love to quote, what does the Lord require? And then all of a sudden, it turns right to this, right? Um, okay, John 8.
2: Jesus went across to Mount Olives, but he was soon back in the temple again. Swarms of people came to him. He sat down and talked to them. The religious scholars and Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They stood her in plain sight of everyone and said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses, in the law gives orders to stone such persons. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so they could bring charges against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. They kept at him, badgering him. He straightened up and said, The sinless one among you, go first. Throw the stone. Bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. Hearing that, they walked away, one after another. Beginning with the oldest. The woman was left alone. Jesus stood up and spoke to her. Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one, Master. Neither do I, said Jesus. Go on your way from now on. Don't sin.
0: So I like this passage for a couple reasons, because it, it presents to us one of those, you know, typically overemphasized. Things that we that some people have described as sin, um, right? And I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying we have talked about sexual things way more than anything else, right? Um, so here we have a woman brought to to Jesus, and they say, "Look, the law says we should stone this woman. She was caught in adultery." So we have someone fully, you know, accepting that that legal model that I was talking about earlier, right? Um, what I find most interesting about this is that. Okay, first of all, neither do I condemn you. That's interesting, right? Um, but then Jesus says, go and sin no more. So it seems to me from this passage that, first of all, Jesus thinks it's possible for us not to sin which is interesting but also that Jesus is much more concerned with repair and restoration than he is with punishment neither do I condemn you it's an interesting thing for the second person of the trinity to say right alright and then Romans 7 who had that 14 to 25, and dramatically, please, as I imagine Paul writing. I
1: know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer that I do it. But sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it, it is no longer that I do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war, war, with the law of my mind, making me captain to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord.
0: Other oh, Paul. Wretched man than I am. So there's a lot in that one uh, for you to ponder as we leave. But um, you know, does that description fit necessarily the kind of simplistic understanding of sin that I think many of us came in with today? I mean, what Paul is describing there is not some some stuff he occasionally did wrong, right? Or some, you know, kind of equation where, all right, so, you know, I stole some candy once, and therefore I'm eternally damned unless I accept Jesus into my heart, and then it's good, good to go, right? Paul is talking about this force that he is trying to describe, right? I, I know what I want to do. And every time I try, I mess up. And every time I want to do what's right, I end up feeling this alienation again, and I don't know how to get out of it. But thanks be to God. Grace. Right? Grace. Right? Um, all right. Thank you all. If you enjoyed this, please join us for the next three sessions of Christian Ease. We'll be meeting in the Greenwood Forest Baptist Church Fellowship Hall at 930 on November 24th, December 1st, and December 8th. Hope to see you there.